So we're doing a series at the moment, uh, as you might see on the screen, another story, the Jesus way as a wisdom tradition. This was inspired uh, by our friend, Michael Frost, who came over from New Zealand a while ago and talked to us about the way that they see their community or their community gatherings as an opportunity for people just for a moment to be immersed in another story, a story that is different from the dominant story in our culture. Uh, so we, we want to run with that because uh, it really resonates with a lot of what we have done in past series in this community. And we wanted to explore what the dominant story is in our culture and how we might best resist it. I meant to pray before we started, so I might just cut in there and do a little prayer. Um, so that was, think of that as a teaser. Loving God, uh, thank you for this community. Thank you for the fact that we are able, just for a moment in our week, to come together and immerse ourselves in a different story from the story that is all around us. The story that we're so immersed in that we don't even realise that we are shaped by it. And I pray that we might find ways in this community of resisting the violence of the dominant story in our culture and finding ways to hold on to the vision of shalom, of peace, that Jesus showed us, that Jesus lived. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as always, I'm going to start with a little pricey because people don't come here very often, so we really need to bring you up to speed. Luckily, it's week two of the series, so there's not too much to update you on. But essentially, last week, Shane shared what he's writing a master's thesis on, and it is the, based on the work of a, an American psychologist called Bruce Rogers Vaughan. And as a therapist, he has encountered a new form of suffering in his patients that he calls third-order suffering. I won't go into the details of it. You can listen to the podcast from last time. But in essence, it's about the fact that we live in a culture which has turned us so much into separate autonomous individuals that we are told and we internalise the idea that whatever happens to us, it's our responsibility, for good or for bad. And if we are in difficulty, if we are struggling, then the only person who's responsible to help with that is ourselves. And so on top of the pain that you might experience if you are suffering a mental health crisis or you are in an accident or you are grieving or you are depressed, on top of the inherent pain of that, there's this extra layer of pain which comes from the fact that you and you alone are responsible for dealing with that and for digging your way out of the hole that you're in. So it's a narrative where there's 
There's no space for caring relationships. There's no space for dependent relationships. Dependent relationships are really just things that hold us back from achieving our full potential, from having the level of mobility and flexibility to be able to take opportunities as they come up, whether they're across the globe or across the country. And anything that holds us back is an inhibition of our freedom and our autonomy. So it becomes a real kind of survival of, of the fittest narrative where if you're able-bodied and you have your wits about you and you have lots of opportunities and lots of privilege, you can do incredible things and if you don't, then you're on your own. And the result of this is, amongst many other things, the breakdown of any kind of collective, whether that's a church or a club or a mosque or a synagogue or a union or a neighbourhood organisation. Even the sense of neighbourhood itself breaks down under the force of that narrative of individual autonomy and freedom. And we talked last week about how dangerous and destructive this is. How, as I said, there's no space in it for systems of care and for people being dependent on each other. I was listening recently to, not within Lent, of course, because I've given up podcasts for Lent, but I was listening recently, just before Lent started, uh, to a someone talking about a survey with 15-year-olds about their role models. And this is a longitudinal study, so it's been going on for decades. And the pattern that they've noticed of the role models that 15-year-olds choose. You know, 40 years ago, they would be people like Martin Luther King, people who had um, kind of values and engagement with justice and whatever that inspired young people. And over, over the years, over the decades, up till today, the shift has been more towards people who are rich, celebrities, YouTubers, influencers, people who are famous for being famous, essentially. And there's something deeply disturbing about that kind of shift and what it says about the, the narrative for what it is to be human that is coming to dominate our vision of the world. So how do we resist this story? That was the question that Shane left us with last week. Um, how do we resist the story and what it does to those on the margins, what it does to the young, to the old, the sick, the poor, the deeply lonely? And the suggestion of this series is that beliefs or a system of beliefs are not enough. What we need is a wisdom tradition, a collective immersion in stories, rituals, practices, songs, symbols, that this kind of immersion is the only thing strong enough to help us see and resist the destructive dominant narrative of our culture. So the idea of this series is to sit with that lens for a while, explore how seeing Jesus as a wisdom tradition might shape the story we tell ourselves about the world. Um, so today what we're going to start with is 
looking at a couple of passages. I sent these passages out to you during the week if you're on our kind of mailing list or if you're a co-creator or you saw the Facebook post. We're going to read a couple of passages together and I guess I want you to, as, you, as we read them, think about what images come up for you, what ways these passages might offer to us, what resources they might offer to us to resist that dominant narrative that we just outlined? How do they present a picture of what it is to be human which is different from that dominant narrative? Um, I haven't asked anyone to read these, so would someone like to volunteer? This is the first one, Mark 15, 22 to 32, so it's part of a crucifixion narrative. Thanks, Warwick. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed mixed. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. With Jesus they crucified two rebels with them, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The second one is a passage that we come back to often, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But would someone like to read this one, Philippians 2, 5 to 11? Thanks, Karen. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, but rather become completely empty by taking the very nature of oppressed humanity born into the human condition. And being found in human likeness, Jesus was this humbled by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted Jesus and gave to Jesus the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, the earth. And every tongue acknowledged to the glory of God that Jesus reigns supreme. Problem when you try to create inclusive versions on the fly, you end up with lots of <laughs> typos. Sorry about that, Karen. Made it even more difficult for you. Um, so just going to give you a minute or two just to reflect on those two passages and think about resources that they offer us as a story to resist this kind of dominant narrative of autonomy and competition. But while you're reflecting, I just wanted to um, mention one thing that I think is an important uh, resource that religious traditions and wisdom traditions offer to us when it comes to change and to resisting narratives. And that is something that, um, I don't know if you know Alain de Botton, he's an English philosopher. He wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. And in it, he talks about the fact that 
One of the things that religions and wisdom traditions understand, which the university doesn't understand, is that if you want to change people's hearts and minds, you need to tell them the same few things over and over and over again so that they sink into their heart and soul. What the university does tells you a different thing every week and expects that you've filed that away and then you're going to add the next thing next week and build up this image of the world, but that's not how people change. And for him, the genius of a religious tradition and a wisdom tradition is exposing people to the same truths over and over so that they can absorb them and start and to have their hearts changed and in, in so doing resist the culture around them. Um, which is why sometimes we come back to the same passages again and again because some passages in the Bible really do sit at the heart of what we see as the Jesus way and what the Jesus way has to offer us in resisting and um, fighting the culture that we're in. So any thoughts on those two passages? I'll flick back to the first one again so you can have a look at it. But any things that you think in these two passages that offer us resources to resist that dominant story? So back in the first one, what I see is people telling Jesus how and what he should do to be credible in their eyes. And in the context of what you were saying about our culture, I think that offers that, I mean, Jesus knew what he was doing and what his purpose was, um, and it wasn't actually important that, that he perform or behave in a way that um, those leaders viewed as the way to be credible or successful. And so, yeah, that, that's something I reflected on from this passage. Yeah, he certainly didn't build a big global platform. Um, and yes, when you see how the story ends, it seems to be a very different logic that he's operating out of. Anything else from either passage, Dean? <coughs> I, I noticed for the first, first time in that passage, the second line, that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Um, and I was reflecting that a lot of it, you could imagine... You know, this guy and, and, you know, everything they've done to him, enormous pain, just, you know, get on with it sort of thing. And yet that line, um, th he still had some, like, agency. He was still making a, you know, I, I'm, I can choose here. Yeah. What I see in this is someone who is choosing not to react to the way everyone else is beating him up and beating him down. And... It's almost implied in that, and again with the end of the story, uh, that somewhere along the line, to each of those people, he's holding up a mirror to themselves and something that at some stage in the future, or even at that point, they're going to look into themselves and say, what was I doing? Yeah, I woke up this morning thinking I should have chosen Luke rather than Mark because it has that beautiful line... You know, Abba God, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And that, that line yeah, really sits at the heart of what draws me to the Jesus way, that at that point of extremity there's still that acknowledgement of 
the kind of acknowledgement of the other, even when this other person is killing you, still s staying connected to their humanity. Any reflections on the Philippians passage? I think I'm reaching here, but um, in this one, it talks about how God becoming and engaging in the human experience was admirable or commendable, and that idea that to be above that isn't the focus, and that had me reflecting, I suppose, on um, the way we, even in little things in our culture, like the start of small talk being, oh, what do you do for work? It's like, where do you sit? Like, where? how am I to view you? Um, and so the idea that God's saying, hey, like, Jesus came down and humbled himself to be just like us, and that's how our relationship should be, um, yeah, had me reflecting on, on that. I've kind of been going back and forth between the previous um, passage and Philippians um, and just reflecting on our um, continuation of rediscovering our faith and when we need to reflect on when we're wrong and we need to look back. So you look at some of the Jews previously in the, um, the was it the Luke passage of how, yeah, so they were saying, oh, you're um, not going to save yourself, um, putting the king of the Jews on the title kind of a mockery. But then you reflect that in the end he did resurrect back from the dead and he did get honoured with the highest name possible from God because he is the son of God. So it's just a reflection that they probably thought, the Jews at the time, that they're being loyal to God, they're doing the right things, they're practising law, but no, they were quite wrong. So it's just a reflection of maybe every now and then we need to look and think is there a change in my faith? Is there something that doesn't align with love? Um, that's just what I think. I'll give you a bit of space in a, in a, a little later just to see if you have any final reflections. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things. I don't actually want it to be too long today. I just wanted to say a couple of things that relate to what people have said just about Lent and Easter. Um, and with it being Ramadan coming up. And this idea of um, Lent as a time for giving things up. And it's, it's easy to see that in terms of you know, podcasts or gluten or something tangible that you might give up for, for Lent as a, a kind of uh, not particularly nuanced form of self-denial. But... If we see it instead as trying to, to cultivate in ourselves a sense of, of pulling back of the self, of kind of a reducing the space that we occupy so that there might be space for the other, it changes it from a kind of simple act of self-denial into a metaphor for a completely different engagement with life and with other people. Um, and that idea that Martin was talking about of um, not kind of expanding self, not just being what other people expect you to be, but 
completely different understanding of what it is to be a self and what it is to be human. Um, in theology, they talk about the idea of kenosis, uh, which is a Greek word for self-emptying. And often people talk about the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, as an act of kenosis, God in all of God's fullness contracting down to the size of a human baby. And the question becomes, what is that act of self-emptying? What is that act of the pulling back of the self? What does it allow in terms of our engagement with the other? I think a lot of us grew up in a sense uh, in, a, in church communities where it was almost like about pure self-denial, pure kind of restricting of self, and that could be abused by communities to um, take people who were struggling with self-esteem and to reinforce that sense of, of smallness of self. But I think what, what Jesus intends and what we see in Jesus is, is that that self-emptying, that pulling back of, of self is actually for the purposes of connection with the other, not some kind of um, pure and simple self-denial. The image I came up with um, for this, I was going to give you a chance to sort of, um, oh, you can, you, we can do this <laughs> while I'm talking. You can just um, think about if this is, uh, the image, sorry for those playing at home on the podcast, I'm just describing a picture, but uh, if, if this on the left is an image of our dominant story and our dominant culture of all of these individual separate selves expanding as much as possible, occupying as much space as possible in competition with each other, um, squashing out others, then what might be an image, what might be a picture, what might be a symbol of what we see in Jesus in the Philippians passage, what we see in the incarnation, what we see in the crucifixion, what vision of or model of what it is to be human is Jesus presenting in competition with this model of competing selves. And what came to me this week um, was a water molecule, as it turns out, um, the idea which you see in chemistry of a molecule, a self, giving up a small aspect of itself to enable it to connect with the other. Um, and what's, what's striking in water is the fact that um, with hydrogen, it's a kind of um, a gas that does not provide us with life, combining together through a gas that does give life to create something beautiful and sustaining and tangible in the form of water. And it struck me that that is a kind of more life-giving, a more productive vision of what, what self-denial, what self-emptying, what kenosis might be, not a self-denial, self-flagellation competition, but a sense of that what it is to be human is to be connected. And what is required for connection to others is 
a pulling back of the self to create that space between that allows connection. One of my favorite um, thinkers and friend of the church, Martin Buber, um, talked about the fact that the self actually exists in the space between us and another person. That who we are actually only exists in that space between me and another person. In the absence of another person, I cannot be myself. And that image of what it is to be human is such a profound challenge to this vision of autonomous competing selves. It says that you cannot be a self if you're on your own. You literally cannot. And that the the greater the distance you have to bridge between yourself and another person, the greater difference there is there in that relationship, the more space there is for life and for connection. It's a profoundly different image of what it is to be human, what the human project is, what it means to flourish as a human being. And I think that's what the story of Easter, the story of Lent, these stories that we come round to every year, part of what they're trying to do as they drip into our hearts is to awaken us to what it is to be truly human. That it is through the limiting of self for the purposes of connection. I'm going to finish in a second, but were there any final thoughts that people had that were prompted by the passages, by what I suggested, Dean? Thanks, Rod. I, I, <coughs> when you were describing uh, uh, the self-existing between in that space, and that makes a lot of sense, but I had this thought almost screaming at me uh, uh, in response that part of the problem that I think um, a lot of us have is by, by um, withdrawing or contracting, if you like, um, we are in a culture where people will treat you as ir irrelevant. So they're almost just, you're of no use to me, so they move on. And so there's actually no space and it gets worse because I'm now nobody, you know. Yeah, so the challenge is to have a strong enough self-esteem that I can just be still and sit with that, even though, like Jesus, they crucified him and called out. The reality, I think, of the culture that we're in is that um, if you're not doing what's on the left, you get treated as irrelevant and, and useless. Yeah. At its extreme. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is where doing this collectively is so important. Yeah. If, if you don't have other people that are mirroring back to you the, the value of these choices, even when the world is saying that by doing this, you are nothing, um, it, it's impossible. And the other part of that, I think, is kindness to ourselves of when, when it is hard and when we feel like um, our attempt to kind of pull, pull back the self to not occupy as much space as possible to allow space for others is kind of misunderstood or is abused uh, to go, to be kind and go, yeah, that, that hurts and it's hard. Um, yeah. Oh, lots of hands all of a sudden. Um, yeah, I, I see the model on the right um, to be, I, I feel it differently, like 
for those on the podcast, it's got the H2O molecules and there's a boundary between the hydrogen and the oxygen. And to be a little geeky, if I remember my chemistry, that's not actually accurate. There's the, I think it's the covalent bond where there's actually electrons shared and that's what bonds them. And I think that's a better model because it's showing that there isn't a boundary, there isn't a contraction. There's actually an affecting, like one affects the other. So instead of contraction, I prefer the word, like there's a transparency, a partial transparency. So one, and I find this with people too, you get affected by others and they affect you. And that way, you're not an individual, you actually very much experience it. And that leads to my second thought when you're saying about the that relationship or who you are actually exists in between another person and you're not so much on your own. Um, Marie, Marie does a, um, a therapy, she's a therapist as a whole body relational therapist and that model actually highlights that we affect others and I've had, um, I've had experiences in, in therapy slash self-development where you're sitting opposite to another person for half an hour and like no other people are in, engaged and you're saying things as they come up that you feel and it's really, really intimate, scary, vulnerable because sometimes you're sitting in front of someone and it's like, I'm scared, like you scare me or I'm attracted to you or... Um, or I feel like you're pushing me away, like really, really honest stuff. And once you say that, the other person shifts in reaction and then they say something. And it's very slow, it allows for things to come up, but it's just this incredible um, acknowledgement that something happens in between two people. And when we slow down and let that come up, it's, it's, there's a whole world there that we miss when we're fast and when we think there's a boundary. So. So I probably should have got an actual water molecule because I totally agree with your critique of my drawing. So luckily, if you <laughs> if, if you listen to the podcast, just bring up a picture of an actual water molecule. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. I was kind of struggling when we first um, looked at the Philippines passage because we were sort of focusing a lot on the left side, which was all the emptying and kind of almost like Jesus making himself nothing and it missed the whole right side where actually because of what he went through, God elevated him. And and it, to me it was like, well, actually maybe that's just a transformation that had to happen so that he actually had to become quite big and quite global and as much as we were sort of dissing all the 15-year-olds for putting people on a pedestal, Jesus suddenly became that and is so huge and global and influencing, you know, our country and our world still. So there's a sense of actually maybe it's not just emptying to become something small or something completely empty, but actually filling that God space to actually have a much bigger role in the world. Thanks, Katrina. I was just thinking in terms of practical ways of thinking about affording people the opportunity to enter our lives. Um, just on the back of what we said about Neighbour Day before, one of the practices that we've been trying to enter um, has been just limiting our movement. And I don't know if you've heard of the 15 or 20 minute city. It's a bit controversial now because some anti-vaxxers have left on it as a restriction of public, uh, private privilege. 
But um, I think it's, it's really a great practice to think about because the more I just dwell without a programmatic approach to life in the city where we live, it's like your eyes just open up to universes within universes and entering people's lives and allowing enough margin for them to um, come into your life without beckoning at all. It's a rhythm that's counterintuitive in Melbourne where we're driven by our ability to be mobile. Um, Melbourne has so much sprawl because it, it grew with the automobile and trains. And but just because we can move doesn't make it a good thing to do all the time. Um, so we've had to say no to um, some invitations from family um, who live in the outer suburbs who we see regularly, but we've limited that for a reason. And, you know, like Shane has made so much of a point about hypermobility and, and foregoing that choice for the local. And I think that's really paid off in terms of the ability to create margins, healthy margins in our life. Um, and we have that as a church too. But the idea of asking ourselves, what does incarnation look in my neighbourhood can only really be answered by making physical and regular choices to sometimes limit our own mobility, I think. Thanks, Dan. Might just have one more and then we finish up. Thanks. Thank you. The pressure of having the mic last. Um, I just wanted to name a factor of this that I feel is really important uh, around, like, this is where one of the stories that really matters to me, that Jesus is male, uh, because I think if, if, you know, a lot of the language we use have been talking in this morning of taking up less space, contracting, I would feel very different if, um, like, I don't know, there just seems to be such a thing of women and uh, gender non-conforming people being told to take up less space. Uh, and then this feeling like, yeah, I would have heard this completely differently if it had come from a woman or a gender non-conforming person, even though trans Jesus is my favourite theological concept, setting that aside. Uh, yeah, like of, of a man taking up less space and um, allowing for that... Um, yeah, interchange and being affected by each other is a much more inspiring vision. And I think there's so much, like, uh, difference in hearing that as a gender non-conforming person and uh, wanting to uh, take up more space. Like, it feels like the kind of different journey of being on. And I loved what we were saying about the, like, molecules not losing any of their distinctiveness or their, um, their self in the kind of... Uh, yeah, moving from the model of competing selves to um, sharing space, I think there's a real danger in uh, women and, again, gender non-conforming people who compromise so much of their boundaries and sense of self to exist in the world already uh, that I don't want to bring that across into the new model and... Um, yeah, so I was quite fond, even though it's chemically inaccurate, of, of the boundaries between the molecules because it conveyed to me a sense of, like, no, here I am, still in my fullness, and in that fullness, and maybe that's what you were saying, Matthew, about the permeability, uh, permeability rather, of, of the molecules that we are affected by and share each other but don't um, compromise ourselves. Sorry, a bit of a ramble for the last. <laughs> that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah, I love what you were saying there, Annika. And it, it reminds me of um, 
what theologian and musician Jeremy Begbie, no relation, um, talked about with the, if you have a, a visual image of two selves, it's, it's always a kind of um, either or, do, do you occupy this space or do I occupy the space? But when you have two notes, you play the second note and it actually brings out harmonies in the first note that are not there when it's on its own. And I think that's the kind of image that you're talking about, Annika, where if we are being with each other in the way that Jesus models, it's not about, it's never about the contraction of self, but actually the bringing out of higher tonalities, um, higher aspects of who we are in when we connect with another. Uh, and it just, you know, given that it's kids' morning, um, I, I often I come back to Jesus rebuking his disciples for trying to get rid of the kids so that Jesus could get on with the business of being the Messiah. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. These children are the point. And if you can't see yourself as needing children, as becoming more fully who you are through connection with children, you don't get it. Um, and that's why we banish them to another room. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's deeply profound. Uh, other, another friend of the community, Richard Raw, talks about his desire for one small humiliation every day um, because as people like me that often do take up a lot of space, um, yeah, we need those regular reminders that we need to not sit on our own dignity but let it go so that we can connect and expand. Um, the other cheeky thing I did is um, I made this picture mirror that picture. Uh, <laughs> Jesus on the cross with the two uh, thieves on either side. Um, yeah, it's almost like Je Jesus is parodying the image of expanding self as he dies. Uh, so we're going to have communion now. Um, just as an introduction to communion, I wanted to, to read out something that Shane said last, last time because it was so beautiful. Um, one of the key concerns about the early Christians was their strange meals, slaves and masters dining as equals. This was subversive in a society that depended on stratification to remain stable. I wonder what transformation happened because of this practice of communion, this practice of shared meals between every strata of society. What happened to the inherent belief that slaves were subhuman and that the gods had ordered things that way. So if you haven't been here before, the way we do communion is you just come forward. Um, whoever comes forward first can crack uh, the crackers with a knuckle, take a little bit of cracker, take a thing of juice, and then kind of stand in a loose circle. And when we're all ready, I'll pray, and then we'll eat and drink together. Obviously, if you don't feel comfortable participating, that is totally fine. We don't expect anyone to participate if they don't want to. Um, but, but it's important for us, for you to know that this is a safe and inclusive place. So if you want to participate, you should. There's nothing that excludes anyone from this table.
Yeah, so come forward when you're ready, if you want to, and take a bit of cracker and a thing of juice. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you gave us Jesus to show us what it is to be human, to show us that at the heart of being human is connecting with others through humility and finding flourishing in that connection. We pray that this might be a place where we can immerse ourselves in a story just for a moment that helps us to resist the dominant story around us. Help us to be a place where through story and practice and ritual and song and symbol, we become people of peace, people of justice, people of love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat and drink.